Hi, welcome to Auckland AV. Uh, my name's Rowan. I don't know how you've been doing this week. Um, there are definitely times in life as we experience the ups and downs when you've got to ask, what is going on in this world? Uh, what is God doing? I don't know how the lockdowns have been affecting you or the, the prospect of being in this much, much longer. Um, there are times when, when we, we definitely come and go, how, how can this happen? How can God allow this? Or, or things that happen that are far worse than that. Well, this week is one of those weeks, not only because we've been feeling the strain of COVID and lockdown, but as we come to the pages of history and the pages of the Bible, the passages that we're looking at this week are some of the hardest to hear in the Bible. It makes you ask, what is God doing? What can we learn from such horrific events? The answer is a lot. So why don't we pray that God would help us now to understand his word uh, and to think through how it changes the way we view him and his world. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at the events of history and see all sorts of things that are horrific, that shouldn't be as they ought to be, and we stand back and we ask, where are you? What are you doing? As, as we feel the ups and downs of sickness invading the world you've created, we ask that we'd come to you and hear your word today and trust you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, have you ever been manipulated? <laughs> When I was just out of high school, um, I was reading the paper and, and, and I came across an ad in the paper. Now, at that point in time, it was a literal paper because we didn't have the internet in that sense. But as I was reading it, the, the title came up for this job that said, earn good money. Uh, you can work from home. It'll be great. So, so I called the number and got an interview. But when I, when I got there, it was less of an interview and more of an information session. The product was some weight loss mix that provided all the vitamins and minerals that you need. And look, it seemed like a good product. It had everything anyone would ever want in it. But then they kind of talked through the way to make money isn't just to buy this product and sell it for a bit of a markup. You need to build the business. If you really want to make money from this product, you get um, 20 people who want to buy through you and you get each of those people to get 20 people each. And that way, all the kind of commissions will come up through you and literally you can make lots of money. Uh, they then introduced me to some people who, who'd made lots of money. And you're like, wow, maybe this is, this is legit. But the problem is, this was a pyramid selling kind of idea. And that's that it works well for the first few rungs where 20 people need to get 20 people um, who need to get 20 people. And they can sell this idea of you could build the business on. The problem is, once you get to five iterations of that, so five times you have to tell the next person, if you just get 20 people and they get 20 people and they get 20 people, then um, you know, you'll be fine. Once you get to level five, you need 3,200 people, sorry, 3.2 million people <laughs> to buy your product. Not 3,200, 3.2 million. At the sixth generation, you need 64 million. At the seventh generation, you need 1.28 billion. And the eighth generation, 25 billion. <laughs> now, that's more people that are on the face of the planet. That means only eight lines down, the promise you're selling doesn't work. The whole structure was manipulative. Sure, it works for the people at the top, but it can't keep going. I hate being manipulated. It makes me feel foolish. It makes me feel angry. You see it when all sorts of people try and manipulate others in life as well. Uh, the guy who tries to get his girlfriend to sleep with him. You know, if, if you love me, you'll sleep with me. And if you don't, it's just showing that you don't love me. He's just using the girl to get something that he wants. According to psychologists, psychological manipulation aims to change the perception or behavior of others through underhanded, deceptive or even abusive tactics. 
Its whole aim is to get something for yourself, to use someone else for your own benefit and, and have no care or concern about that person at all. People, they do it with one another, but we also do it with God, both in the days of judges and today. We're going to see that this passage is all about manipulating God. And we see it through manipulating God through an empty form of repentance. The reoccurring sentence pops up again in the book of Judges. Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, serving false gods again. In verse seven, we see that God gets angry because they did this evil and he hands them over to the Ammonites and the Philistines who attacked them as, as a judgment. So they'll realize what a good God he is and how they need him. And so Israel again cries out to God. It's the same old pattern. We've seen it time and time before. But this time we get more detail than we have before on crying out. It seems like Israel are, are truly sorry at the start. It seems like they repent. Look at chapter 10, verse 10. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. We've sinned against you for forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Right? The Baals were the, were the other gods. And it sounds like Israel here have repented. Now, repentance simply means to, to turn around, to go back. It's like a, a U-turn. You, you stop from going one way and start going another. You stop following one God and, and worship the true and living God. That's what's, what's going on with repentance. But there's no way you can hold that Israel truly repent here when you listen to God's response to them. Look at verse 10, verse 11. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, and the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me for help. Did I not save you from their hands? But you've forsaken me and served other gods, so I'll no longer save you. Go, cry out to the gods that you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. You're like, ouch. God here sees their hearts and he's not happy. He's sick of their empty repentance. Oh, oh, sorry, God. Sorry, God. Then they go do it again. Sorry, God. Do it again. Do it again. It's just this pattern that keeps going over and over and over. God's had enough. Right. And, and you don't blame him, do you? I, I will save you no longer. If, if you want the other gods, you can have them. Go ask them for help. Go and see what kind of help they're going to give to you. You cry to me. Go cry to them. Get them to save you now you're in trouble. Now, the next bit, Israel's response, seems to increase the possibility of repentance after this stirring word of God. Look at verse 15. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we've sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. Now, it appears that Israel have repented. They've actually come back to God. It's not just a confession but a change in their action. They put away the false gods and they serve the Lord. And it appears that God responds to Israel's repentance. Look at the second half of verse 16. And he, God, could bear Israel's misery no longer. But literally what it says in the Hebrew is that God was impatient of Israel's misery. It actually makes me think this is real repentance. It's empty. God doesn't respond to their repentance. He just can't bear their misery any longer. In the end, God knows that the only reason Israel is repenting is so they can get out of this situation, so they could be saved. And he's fed up with it. And as soon as they're saved, they then re they, they return to their old ways and, and walk away from him. We saw it last week that even while Gideon, the judge, was still alive, Israel abandoned God. But now Israel have gone one step further. 
They're trying to manipulate God. They're trying to use God to get what they want with no desire or intention uh, to keep serving him. But here's the amazing thing about God. He saves them despite their rebelliousness. Enter Jephthah. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. Who knows how you say it? It's got lots of H's and T-H's in it. But we'll just call him Jephthah because it's going to be a lot easier for the rest of this talk. Jephthah was from Gilead. Now, when he was younger, he's kicked out of home by his brothers because his mother was a prostitute. Now, this guy, he's a machine, right? He's a unit. He was a guy that when you're in year six, he was already shaving, right? He gets booted out of home because he's come from this family and he hangs out with these, these scoundrels. Um, think of him as someone like a Vin Diesel, right? With a cigarette in his hand, a bag of spray paint as a kid going round. It tells us that he, that he went away. Some translations tell us went and hung out with the adventurers, uh, with worthless men. Now, adventurers here, they're not people like Robertson Crusoe where they're going around and trying to look for new lands. <laughs> These guys are going around looking for trouble. Uh, they're kicking tires, they're pushing cars over, they're setting buildings alight. They're really cruising the town looking for trouble. And that's the type of people Jephthah was hanging out with. He's a unit, a machine of a man, and he's kind of causing all sorts of problems. Now the brothers, in the absence of Jephthah, grow up into being leaders of Gilead. But when God hands Israel over to the Amorites, the Gileads, they need a leader. They need a savior. They need Vin Diesel. And so the brothers remember their half-brother, Jephthah, and they go find him from whatever he's doing, pushing over buildings. And they, kind of, they come and ask him to be their commander, to fight the Ammonites for them. Now, if you do this, if, if, if you come, we will make you our ruler, they say. And again, we see another example here of Israel's manipulation. They want Jephthah now because they need him. Like, okay, quick, quick, come. It's kind of like this insurance policy. If if you come, we'll make you our ruler. If you do this, we'll make make you amazing. Jephthah, he's he's not too happy. But then his brothers repent. Look at verse 8 of chapter 11. The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning, literally repenting to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. As we get to this part here, we're seeing everyone's repenting. Everyone's turning back. But is it real repentance? Or is it just hollow to get what you want? Well, both Israel and the Gileadite brothers repent because they want to get out of trouble and both receive a similar rebuke. God says, your repentance is a joke. Jephthah says, you hated me and drove me away and now you're returning to me? (laughs) See, there's a difference between sorrow and true repentance. Sorrow is when you feel bad about something you've done. Uh, You know the feeling, you're guilty and you feel sorry. Whereas repentance, it's actually doing something about it. Often the reason we feel sorry is because of the consequences we face, because of our actions. It's like sorry is our get out of jail free card. You know, we say sorry, phew, glad I avoided them blowing up at me now. I've said sorry, it's all good. Sometimes it's just used as that kind of shallow word. We're not really concerned about the person that we've offended. We're not, we're not concerned about if we'll do it again. We just say sorry and then move on. <laughs> now, repentance at its heart is a relational thing. It's not something you've got to do like some rite or religious ritual. It's coming to one that we've wronged, recognizing how badly we've treated them, asking them to forgive us, to not treat us as we deserve, and then doing all you can to make sure that you, you, you don't do it again. Israel, 
they were sorry. They put away their false gods, but it didn't last. It wasn't real repentance. As soon as the present crisis was avoided, they do exactly what got them there in the first place and they ended up worse. It's like a dog returning to its own vomit. Have you ever seen that? Dogs do that. They spew up and they go back to it and they lick it up and eat it again. It's gross. It's disgusting. Israel here returns to the gods of their surrounding culture. Why? Because they didn't trust God. They thought that the things their surrounding culture worshipped offered them more, more security, more satisfaction, more comfort, more pleasure, more fun, whatever it was. They forget that their culture's objects of worship were powerless and empty, unfulfilling and worse, false and destructive. They forgot who the true God was. They forgot God was God. It begs the question of you and me today. (laughs) Have you forgotten who is God? Have you forgotten that God is God? Have you truly come back to him and recognized the way you've treated him by pretending to stand in his place? Have you said to him, not only am I sorry for not putting you in the number one position in my life, but I want you to help change me to keep having that aspect of sorry, of, of repentance. God calls us and he commands us to turn to him, to trust him and receive forgiveness. The New Testament shows us that God, the son, Jesus, died in our place. His resurrection from the dead showed that what he did worked, that Jesus defeated death and sin and is now risen and will be the judge over all. It's Jesus' death and resurrection that gets us right with God. What areas of your life do you need to do business with God in? What areas are molded more by empty repentance and sorrow rather than a true repentance and change? We need to ask God to show us those so that we might come to him and be real. We need to ask God by his spirit and through his word to to change us, to mold us into the likeness of his son. Don't coast through life with a mouth full of sorries and a life that looks no different to the world around you. Recognize God is God. Learn from the example of Israel of how horrible it is when you don't actually repent and do business with God. Share with someone how how you're going. Ask them to be praying for you. Talk about where you're really at with God. I mean, all of us are sinners. None of us can take the high ground. There is nothing, there is nothing more important than doing business with God. Well, Jephthah, he takes up the request of the Gilead leaders. He tries a peaceful solution at first, but the foreign king isn't interested You get the feel that Jephthah then gets a bit excited about that. He's like, brilliant. This is what I'm built for. I'm going to go and smash these nations. Then we hear that the spirit of the Lord comes upon him, that God is going to use this kind of thug to save his people. Now, whenever God is with people, his spirit is on them and their victory is guaranteed because God is with them. That's what happens throughout Judges. And Jephthah is excited. He wants victory. He wants to show his half-brothers. He wants to lead his half-brothers. And it's hard to tell here if he's more excited about saving Israel or saving his reputation of being reinstated as the oldest of the family, even though he's a half-brother. But then he opens his mouth. If only he'd just used his muscles and not his mouth muscles. He, He makes 
this vow, this promise to God, thinking that he can manipulate God to get what he wants. And here we see the core issue of manipulating God by making vows. Have a look at verse 30 of chapter 11. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I'll sacrifice it as a burnt offering. You can just hear in this section, right? The testosterone dripping off that comment. He's so desperate to win the battle and and win the glory that he tries to manipulate God to strong arm the creator of the universe by making a vow. Whatever comes out of the door will will be yours. I'll give it to you, whatever that is. He puts something on the line. I'll offer it to God. Now, when we read it, we don't know what this thing is. In Hebrew, the word there is just whatever comes out. We don't know if, it, if it's a person or, or, or an animal. You kind of hope it's going to be an animal. Like, why would you offer a person? Whatever comes out of the door, is that some kind of animal sacrifice? But then the phrase, whatever comes out of the door to meet me. Now, chickens don't come out of your house to meet you. I've never had a chicken greet me at the front door and say, hi, Rowan, come in. Like that doesn't, doesn't happen. You don't expect a chicken to come out of your house and meet you. You don't expect that of, of, of a donkey or a cow or a goat or any other animals. I mean, they, 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 in this culture, they lived outside anyway. What would come out of his house to meet him? It sounds really odd. You're like, what is he talking about here? The tensions then cranked up and, and you're starting to wonder what will go on. The fight that we've been waiting for, Vin Diesel versus the other nations, is now overshadowed in the whole narrative by this vow. The rest of what happens is is summarized in two verses. In in chapter 11, verse 32, it says this. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands and he devastated 20 towns from Arar to the vicinity of Mineth as far as Abel Kiram. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Over. That's it. The story is not about that. It's now about this vow and what he's trying to strong arm God into doing. What's going to happen when he comes home? You're kind of on the edge of your seat transported to the scene of the action. And then Jephthah gets home. You can imagine turning the corner into his, into his house, the camera playing in slow motion. And there the door opens. It's not a chicken, a cow, a goat, anything like that. But the face of his daughter in full innocence and playfulness, joyful, peaceful with a tambourine, kind of saying, Daddy, I love you. Welcome home. His daughter comes out to meet him. The mood's unbearable though. Can you imagine the pain? He said he will sacrifice to the Lord whatever comes out of his house and he actually meant his daughter. That's what he was thinking. A number of years ago when Nathaniel was quite young, I had this dream uh, where I woke up in the middle of the night sure that Sarah and I had decided to kill Nathaniel. In the dream, for whatever reason, we'd worked out that it wasn't right. It was morally wrong to to have him alive. I don't know why. This is not real. It was a dream. And and we discussed it together and Sarah decided she would be the one to shoot him. Thankful that I didn't do it. But and then so she shot Nathaniel as a baby. We put him in a jar in the fridge. It's a weird dream. I don't often have these. This is not normal for me. Right. And I woke up thinking 100 percent convinced that Sarah and I had just killed our son. Like I, I, I was, it, was, it was so real to me. And I just, I felt, I felt so angry at Sarah. How could you do that? 
And then I'll, I just felt dirty inside, like we'd, we'd, we'd killed our son, but it was only a dream. I had to keep reminding myself, it's just a dream. It's just a dream. And he's still alive today, thankfully. But that actually happening in real life, it's such a tragedy. Listen to the way that Jephthah then speaks about the pain of losing his daughter. You ready? Verse 35 of chapter 11. When Jephthah saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, oh, my daughter. Right? And at that moment, you're like, wow, he's realized how dumb he is. But no, look, oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. He's not killed her yet. He's angry that she's come out of the house, but that's the vow that he, that he got. That's how he tried to strong arm God into it. What an absolute tool Jephthah is. He's not worried at all for his daughter. He's not thinking, I wonder if I could break this. I wonder if I could actually do what is right before God. No, because he's so consumed at getting the victory. He thinks if he breaks it, God won't give him the victory. He won't get to lead Gilead. He won't win the battle with his brothers. What a self-centered, arrogant man to say, I would rather kill my daughter than my pride. <laughs> Jephthah's vow would leave him childless. And it would also leave his daughter childless. In this culture, your honor came from those that remembered you, those from your family line, but his daughter now would have no children. There will be no one to remember her by. It's funny, you know, no one would remember her because Jephthah wanted to be remembered. The irony around this self-centered man, how human nature, what human nature is like that sometimes we're so focused on ourselves. Then we read the climax, verse 39 of chapter 11. After two months where she had time to go and mourn because of her um, not having any children and not being remembered. After two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he vowed. This is no impulsive decision. He had two months to think about it, two months to dwell on it. Oh, it's wrong. The Bible does not condone this. And it's horrific. Jephthah tries to manipulate God for his own glory, for his own gain. What an absolute tool. It makes me angry. But then it got me thinking, sometimes I do exactly that. Sometimes we are focused on our own glory and gifts that we, we just try and manipulate God and we focus on ourselves rather than what we are here for and what really matters on our pride or on people hearing our story. You think about the gifts God has given you and how you want to use them and you want others to say, hey, well done, Rowan, that was a great sermon or, or well done for doing this. And you kind of make it or I've made it sometimes about me and I feel myself sliding into that. God had, had given Jephthah the gift of smashing foreign armies. It doesn't mean he can use it any way he wants doesn't mean we can use the gifts we have any way we want. We need to use them in God's way about for his glory. And you've got to ask the hard question. Sometimes when we're serving, when we're trying to do godly things, we can be all about ourselves. And this is a very hard line from God's word to say, think about who you're serving. But God isn't finished with us. He's still making us into the image of his son. Our motives, this side of Jesus' return, even though we have the spirit, our motives are still twisted. But we are to come to God and ask him to use us for his glory. 
How many times have you heard people talk about serving as their right? I have this gift. It's my right to use it. There's no way to persuade them that it might not be the way God actually calls you to use that gift you have. Just think about it. If Jesus used all the gifts and power that he had, imagine if he'd done that. Where on the cross, he would have called down the 10,000 legion of angels to those that were putting him on the cross and gone, watch this. And they were taken out. But he didn't. He restrained. He held back. Why? Because of God's plan and purpose and God's glory. Because God is glorified as Jesus dies and sin is dealt with. And our rebellion is, is, is finally consumed as God pours out his wrath on Jesus in our place. No, Jesus doesn't use all the powers he's been given for his glory in that sense, but for the plan of his father. So we are to use or refrain from using our gifts um, on one condition and one condition only. We're to use or not use our gifts in a way that we serve God and his plans, not ourselves. Jephthah, he tries to treat God as a servant of himself rather than seeing himself as a servant of God. Here's the point. You can't manipulate God. You can't manipulate by false repentance, pretending, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. And then God will, God will give it to me and I'll be like, ha I'll go do whatever I want anyway. He sees your heart. He, he, he's in control of the whole universe. He knows what, where we're at, what we're thinking. We can't trick God. And you can't manipulate God by making vows or bargains with him. You know, God, if, 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 if you just um, do this thing, I'll follow you all my days. If you, if you give me this particular thing that I'm after, a good mark in this exam, or if you make all the traffic lights green, I'll go to church for every Sunday for the next year. If you just give me a boyfriend or girlfriend, then I'll serve you with my whole life. <laughs> I'm tempted to have those bargains with God. I'm sure you are as well. Here's a reminder to say, don't be so stupid. You can't arm wrestle with God. You can't arm wrestle in his plans and purposes to make him do what you want to do because you've got nothing to offer him. <laughs> See, trying to bargain with God and twist his arm to get him in the spot we want him is ridiculous. It treats God as if he exists for us. But friends, God is God. He knows everything and upholds everything. And you and I, we're creatures. He made us. <laughs> We can't manipulate him. Well, as I hear this episode of history, my question is, why would Jephthah do this? Why? And I think it's because he doesn't seem to get that God is a God of grace. That's why we do it as well. We think God is a God of, of bargain. I've got to get and give and we kind of even it out. We forget that God is a, is a God of grace. Jephthah had forgotten what the true and living God's like. He treats the true and living God like the pagan gods around as some sort of being whose favor can be earned through flattery and lavish sacrifices and offering their children to please them. Treating God that way, the way that you would serve other gods around us, is incredibly offensive to God. It's also incredibly stupid because he doesn't say to act that way and it's incredibly dangerous. To treat someone or something as God when they're not, to, to serve or act or treat someone as God when they're not God is incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly stupid and, and it will be incredibly harmful. 
because they don't deliver. We end up in all sorts of wrong. The gods around in the time of the judges were that the false gods that they were worshipping were kind of the ways you would do it would rip apart families. They were destructive to society. You would go and worship the temple prostitutes, offering all sorts of stuff to all sorts of people. Of course you wanted to go and worship at the pagan temple because the God of Baal was the God of free sex. That's how you get people to church. Sex sells, just come and everyone can have it. It's free for everyone. That way you'd make the pagan gods happy and think that they'd bless the land with fertility and there'd be a, okay, we'll do this for you and you do this for us. Jephthah's got caught up in the gods of the nations around him. Come and offer your firstborn child as a sacrifice to the pagan gods and God will be pleased. It will bring blessing to the rest of your family. Putting something or someone other than the true and living God at the center of your life, whether that be you, another religion, another kind of number one in your life, it's, it's disastrous. Because none of those things, none of those other ways of living, they don't love us. They're not for our good. They're not God. Jephthah thinks he can earn God's favor. But do you really thinking make do you really think making some vow to God will please him? Do you really think anything we can do toward God will affect our standing with him? Do you think we can move ourselves from guilty to not guilty? That'd be like a murderer saying, look, I did the murder, but surely there's something I can do to undo it. No, it's done. The price must be paid. Justice must be delivered. There is nothing we can do to reverse what's already been done between us and God. We've put ourselves in his place. We've rejected him. We deserve death. That's what we've asked for. Life without God. But here's the amazing thing about the God of history. That he is a God of incredible generosity. He loves us anyway. Who, even though we don't deserve it, he offers to save us by sending Jesus to die in our place. Friends, the the Christian message is very, very different from every other religion. Every other religion says it's about what you do. But Jesus says it's already done. I've died in your place. I've paid the price for you. You can't do anything. I've done it. Trust me, accept the gift I've given. That's what grace means, an undeserved gift. And this God that Jephthah was supposed to be worshipping, the God that you and I have met in the person of Jesus, is the God of grace. Jephthah had been so blinded by his culture and the traditions around him that he started to think and operate as if God was just like the false gods of the world around him. He let culture shape his God rather than God shape his culture. That's one of the mistakes we can fall into here. One of the things where we can think about treating uh, God the way our world around us says we ought to do it. And we start making God relevant, taking the Bible and making the Bible relevant for us, irrelevant for today. Where No, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to show the relevance of the Bible because God has spoken. You start to think, how could anyone today sacrifice their child? I mean, who, who would do that? We wouldn't do that. It's so wrong. You read this story and you're so angry, no matter what your moral compass is like. That's wrong. None of us would do that, right? We wouldn't do that at all for our pride or for anything like that, except we do. The abortion clinics across our country are the altars to the God of security and comfort. Culture affects us. 
I don't bring this up to shame anyone. I bring it up here because it's exactly what happens. Someone sacrifices his child for his own glory. And there's all sorts of situations that people are in here and, and I recognize that. And I don't say this to pretend I'm better than anyone. I'm not. I am just as sinful in just as much need of every other sinner on the face of the planet. But I bring this up to show us how our culture can blind us and how it can blind us to, 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 from God and who he is. We accept so easily what everyone does around us rather than let God shape our culture. We let culture shape our God. It's my observation that we are far more affected by our culture than by the Bible. And that's a problem. Jephthah makes us look at ourselves and ask, what enormous blind spots do I have? In what way have I let the culture shape my view of God? It'd be a great prayer to come to God and ask him to, to show us where we, we're not putting him first in our lives, where we're not treating him as he really is, where we have empty repentance and ask God to help us place Jesus at the center of our life, to accept his grace and the freedom that comes from living in it, knowing that Jesus has paid the price for us, that we're free to live for him. But the other thing that Jephthah shows us is the stupidity of thinking we can control God. <laughs> if we actually think God can do more than I do, he can, he can affect the situation that I'm in. If I think he can see more than I can see and know more than I can know and affect more than I can affect, right, that, that's why I want to, to make a vow to him. I want to bargain with him by saying, well, if I do this, I want you to do that. It's because I can't do that. Then how stupid is it to think that we need to manipulate God into doing what the best thing is? He's the all-powerful one thinking that I know what's good for me better than God does. If he says who he is, that thinking is ludicrous. He knows you better than you know yourself. His blessings are far better than anything you or I could ever come up with ourselves. We, we want to trust him to do what we can't do. Then we, we can't think that we know better than him. It's crazy. It's kind of like this and bear with me. It's like you come home and you find an ant in your house. Um, animals in our, in our kind of illustrations today. There's an ant in your house and you walk in and for some reason it's a talking ant. It just works for the illustration, so bear with me. You, you come in and you walk in and the ant is there on the, and it says, hey, I'm sick of this other ant in the back. And it says it in ant language, but you understand it. <laughs> I'm sick of this ant over there. If you go and crush that ant, I'll give you this crumb I found. You're like, um, so... And that crumb is mine. <laughs> it came off my dinner the other night that I bought and I cooked and had here. You're borrowing it from me. You're going to give me something I've already got so that I can do something that you can't do, thinking that it's somehow helpful for me. This house I'm in is mine. You've, you've got nothing you can offer me, Ant. And just because you can't squash that guy and I can, who do you think you are? <laughs> it's like that with God, isn't it? We come to him offer him things that are already in his control and think we can arm wrestle him to get what we want. Yet despite the way we treat God, he loves us. He offers us forgiveness, hope, life, relationship with, with him forever. You don't need to manipulate God to get his blessing. You simply need to trust him. Trust his promises. They always come to fruition. Trust his plans that... The ups and downs of life are in his hands and, and are what we need. And, and it's hard to do that right now, but we need to trust him. 
We know that he's bringing us, using the plans of, of life and the ups and downs to bring us to, to know him and to love him and to make us more like his son. We need to trust his love. Oh, he's good. He's loved us so much that God the Son died for us. And trust his forgiveness. Our sins have been paid for. The relationship with God is ours. There's no longer any problem in the relationship between us and God. And the future death has been defeated. We don't need to earn forgiveness. We can't. It's been offered freely to us. So let me ask you today. If you knew there was nothing you could do to attain God's blessing, his, his lavish pouring out on us of, of life and hope and forgiveness and eternity, and that what he'd, he'd given you in the present was exactly what you needed. If you knew there was nothing you could offer and what you'd been given was what you needed, how would you live differently? So we don't need to try to work to attain God's blessing. We just need to trust his word. It's exactly what Jephthah needed to do. And then we get to live life truly free. Life for him and for his kingdom. So let me ask you today, as you look at the example of Jephthah and him trying to bargain with God, as you look at the crazy things that he does and think about the crazy things we do and the, and the things like our glory and our honour and our comfort that we put in top place, how freeing is it? to trust that God has given us all that we need. I want to encourage you, come to God. Put your life in His hands and trust Him to live life in His grace. Let's pray. Father God, we're so sorry. We're sorry that at times we've rejected you. We're sorry that Sometimes we play these silly games of, of bargaining with you, thinking we can manipulate you to get what we want. We're sorry for the times that we, we repent in a, in a false way. We don't actually turn back to you. We just say, sorry, not sorry. Lord, you know our hearts better than we do. But we are so thankful that Jesus has died in our place, that he's taken the penalty for our wrongs, that he's dealt with it all, that we can stand forgiven because of him. So would you help us to live a life that's not burdened by having to attain your blessing, but that is freed, from enjoying, freed for enjoying your blessing. Please make us people that will live for your glory, that can trust your promises and that serve you with our all, knowing our future, that we might be living for you. Thank you for the times you put us in. Thank you for the ups and downs of life that we need. Thank you that you are good and that you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.